0: Welcome to the Academy podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire mckeever burgett and I work with the Academy for Spiritual Formation and International Ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space, both online and in person, for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. This podcast and other expressions of the Academy only exist because of generous donors like you. As we begin the new year of 2021, please join our efforts by giving a gift of $25, $50, or any amount to ensure our work continues for many years to come. Visit us at academy.upperroom.org and click the orange donate button in the top right corner of your screen to give a gift today. In today's episode, we're joined by Sophia Fisua, beloved Academy faculty, and one of our four renowned teachers for our new one-year online offering, Spiritual Formation in Today's World, that begins February 25th, 2021. Learn more about Sophia and the other faculty, the curriculum, and the sacred spiritual rhythm that the one-year offers by visiting Academy.upperoom.org and consulting the online retreats schedule for 2021. Sophia is a retired professor of spiritual formation at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University and former director of Transformational Preaching Ministries at Discipleship Ministries of the United Methodist Church. Sophia and her husband, the Reverend Dr. Kwasi Kenna, also served as missionaries to Ghana, West Africa, assisting the Methodist Church of Ghana in curriculum writing, Leadership development, and local pastors' education. Sophia has served churches in Iowa and New Jersey and is in frequent demand as a preacher, speaker, Bible study leader, and worship designer for national events. In addition to her professional teaching roles, Sophia and her husband have two adult children and are the proud grandparents of two grandchildren. In spare moments, Sophia writes prayers and Christian poetry, as well as engages the ancient practices of needle crafting, quilting, and batik. My conversation with Sophia was pure delight, and I'm so excited to get to share it with you in this first month of 2021. Sophia invites introspection, honor of the past, and hope for the future. Grab a cup of coffee, water, or tea. Take a walk in the sunshine, get cozy in whatever way feels best for you, and let yourself listen on, beloveds. Listen deep, listen wide, listen. Sophia, thank you for joining us for this Academy podcast. It's wonderful to see you and get to spend some time with you this morning. And I always like to start with our guests by asking who and what you come from, and however you want to answer that, we'd love
1: to hear it. Wow. Um, I come from a family um, that has its roots in Oklahoma, and as I shared before we started uh, recording, our, our children and our grandchildren are in Oklahoma. Uh, after, in spite of all of the Methodist wanderings, when they were of age to choose a place to be, they chose to go back <laughs> to mm-hmm. Oklahoma where the family has roots um my my uh grandparents um migrated to oklahoma in the land run of 1889 they they um their families came up from uh they there were they were slaves in virginia they migrated down to alabama so there's a lot of our family members there that i've never met even Mm -hmm. and then during the land run of 1889 both of my grandparents' uh, families came up and, and um, settled in land uh, during that time. Now that's even a controversial statement to make, but at the time when you're a freed slave and, and there's a possibility in a uh, place that was not even a state at the time to find land. So they have um, land rights in Oklahoma in, in the muddiest, clayish <laughs> parts. Yeah. Um, And then there was this migration up and down to Kansas City. And I'm I'm, I'm, uh, remembering that my grandfather sought work during the Great Depression. Uh And the WPA and, you know, Works Public Association. I think he migrated up for work during that time, which is when my mother was born. And so we have, I I claim roots in both Kansas and Oklahoma. And I claim roots in people who were part of uh, establishing this country.
0: Hmm. So tell us more about uh, your grandparents and and your parents, Um, these people of of Oklahoma, Kansas City, uh, what were their names? What did, ah. you, yeah, what, what did you learn from them? Yeah.
1: Well, um, my my grandparents um, uh, George and Simlin Black were my maternal grandparents. I do not know my paternal grandparents, nor do I really know my father. Uh, there was a they, they divorced when I was pretty young, um, mm-hmm. and my mother's name is Rita, spelled with an H. R. H. E. T. A. I'm understanding now in the South that's Rita. <laughs> but, but yeah. she was called Rita and she was named after an aunt uh but the, uh from what I can understand these were quite resilient people uh again um my grandfather's father was a teenager during the release of slavery and so uh had some very teenager young, young adult you know somewhere in that that age realm had some very vivid memories of 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 slavery and emancipation and and struggle and all of that but the thing that that sticks with me most about my family is in spite of the horrific circumstances that they were confronted with they always figured out how to be joyful and to find joy in the lord i mean i mean god was a very important part of our household uh, so you know my mother is a, is a young divorced woman uh, and and we live with my grandparents and Sundays uh we kept sabbath mm. i'm not you know with this with this recurrence of keeping sabbath i 'm kind of chuckling on the inside because I grew up with with sabbath keepers mm. and and we kept Sabbath, although we did not keep church there was a church um disillusionment um an estrangement from the church but not an estrangement from god and so sabbath was a day we got up we put on nicer clothes uh we did all of our cooking on saturdays um you know we we kept sabbath yeah. and sunday was a day for reflection and so we often did it with the radio preachers oh. and so i heard billy graham and i heard the local preachers and i heard the rosary hour and and it was all God as far as we, as we were concerned. And then in the afternoons after heating up the meal that we cooked, you know, yeah. on the day before, uh, we would spend that time either just being with each other as family or visiting other family members. Hmm. We kept Sabbath. And so now I teach, well, I was teaching. I just retired from Indiana Wesleyan's Wesley Seminary. And one of the Courses that I taught was spiritual practices, and uh, teaching Sabbath has been very eye-opening to my students who are of all ages. You know, seminary students are are anywhere from from twenty-eight to eighty-two now. Mm-hmm. So, so as they sit down and think about what Sabbath is currently uh, occupied with in their lives, and and that they do actually need a day to um, find uh, sanctity in time. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, so sometimes I share my Sabbath memories, but so my, my deepest memories of my uh, family of origin is how they instilled faith in me and a rhythm of life and keeping Sabbath, and and prayers at night, you know, and all these other things. Uh, So, yeah, so uh, I have very, very strong and fond memories of my family. My mother is still living, and uh, we often sit back and reminisce and chuckle about those times. But, yeah, my family of origin was very resilient. Their families, when they came up for the uh, Oklahoma land run, and then they had to go back to uh, Texas and Alabama and places it come from to make a crop that they're farmers so that yeah. they would have the money to move the family and when they got there there was no housing and so just hearing how they improvised with housing and and how they made it work mm-hmm. whatever life handed them they made it work and they kept uh, healthy happy families while making it work. And I I think that's a lesson for uh, our younger generations today is one that I try to communicate to my children and grandchildren that no matter what happens, it does not have to alter you on the inside. You may fight back against your circumstances. You may resist and all of that, but it doesn't have to change you. So that's, that's, that's a family uh, learning. Yeah. So you've,
0: Two main words I heard in all of that that kind of rose up were resiliency and Sabbath. And so yes. I'm curious, uh, what have, have Sabbath and resiliency looked like for you uh, throughout, uh, yeah. throughout your life? And, and how has that interplayed, interacted
1: with your own faith journey? Uh, it's been a very important part. Uh, Sabbath, uh, as a minister, mm-hmm. I have had to fight to keep it and to, z- to designate it as a holy time it's it's had to be a movable sabbath because uh, in one of my parishes, you know, you, you declare a pastor's day off, you know, and uh, intending to keep Sabbath on that. And that would be the day that, a, that they had to have a funeral because that's the only day the family can get in or somebody dies or there's a, a, an amazing car wreck and you've got to go and intend. you know. So I've had to keep a movable Sabbath, but to always keep it in my mind. Uh, working at the Board of Discipleship uh, before, it, back before when it was General Board of Discipleship instead of Discipleship Ministries, mm-hmm. um, it was a little easier to keep Sabbath because I had a little more control over my schedule and I was intentional about scheduling in Sabbath days. Um, Coming to the university in a, in a 12-month university with uh, classes running all the time and on three different cycles and schedules, it was harder for me to fight for Sabbath because uh, it all, always overlapped with something that was, there were too many moving parts. So gaining control of my schedule, I think was the, the largest part of that. So Sabbath is still an important part of who I am and and, and what I feel that I need. When I don't have it, it's, 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 um, it's, it's disorienting. Oh. It's like something is very, very, very definitely missing from my life. The resilience part, um, my grandfather again was born in 1895, and I was granddaddy's shadow. <laughs> no matter what he did, he, he had no sons. He only had my daughter, my, my mother as, as his daughter, and, and I was granddaddy's shadow. Yeah. And, and so, learning a great deal from him, um, he was the man who taught me I could fly. In other words, there's nothing you can't do if you really set your mind to it and feel you're supposed to do it. And so um, there's a plan A, there's a plan B, there's a plan C, and then there's a backdoor plan D. So Mm -hmm. so being able to bounce back when when systems or uh, circumstances or society tells you no, and you know in your heart you should do something people laugh at me because they say she's gonna find a way (laughs) Mm, and so the 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 the, the spiritual uh, challenge in that is to make sure that this determination is not uh originating within myself but rather that it comes from God needing to do something so so one of my lifelong tasks has been sorting out what is it that I thought I was supposed to do, and what is it that God told me to do, and how do I know the difference? And I think that's where spiritual formation and discernment and all those other things come in so so uh, definitely, because uh, you, can, you can force yourself, you can will yourself to do a thing, and then sometimes it's to your detriment, but if God really wanted a thing, then uh, I am committed and willing to stay in the struggle and stay in the, in the perseverance until we see God's will through. So that's kind of you know where, where it has, has, has interplayed in my life. So I, I like to feel that as I'm approaching 70, that I'm more on uh, pursuing the things of God more than pursuing the things of Sophia. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah, yeah. So, you mentioned you have your, your vocational work is really centered in, in pastoring and, and being a missionary. So, tell us a little bit about that path. Uh, where have you lived and traveled? And,
1: and oh, goodness. What oh, goodness. does that look like? Yeah. Oh, my. It, it looks like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, my, my husband, Kwesi uh, Kana, and I started our ministerial path. At Oral Roberts, when Oral was a Methodist, oh. I don't know if people realize I that Oral Roberts that. was originally a Methodist uh, uh, institution and a Methodist endeavor. Oral belonged to Boston Avenue United Methodist Church, and he was the uh, founder. You know, he raised the money and all that for the for the university and then for the seminary. And I remember, uh, you know. Life has a strange way of, of reminding you of, of, of a path. When I was a senior in high school, and you know, you start getting all these notices about where you can go to school come be with us. One of the notices that I got was from Oral Roberts University. And I did not go there at the time because they had not graduated an undergrad class yet. And even at 17, I thought that was important, you know, to make sure that they've graduated right. a class yeah. <laughs> only to find myself, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later there in the seminary mm-hmm. after they've more than graduated a class. They had a law school at the time, which went to regent and, and Oral was a member of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. So we were on the university Senate at the time that I entered Oral Roberts. And that's where Quasi and I met and uh, we began our journey in ministry, Uh, we had thought that we might, well, first of all, we weren't Methodist. Back in the 1980s, when we were both in seminary, neither of us was Methodist. And so we were uh, contemplating uh, getting, getting married. And then where is a denomination where both of us are welcome? You hear that, don't you? Yeah. where both of us are welcome. And so we, we, had, we had United Methodist colleagues because, again, this is a Methodist seminary, uh, but we hadn't quite considered it until a recruiter from Iowa came down. Uh, uh, one of the recruiters from Iowa came down and he, he stopped by Oral Roberts. He went down to Perkins. You know, he was, he was going and zigzagging his way down looking for people because Iowa had a pastor shortage at the time. And mm-hmm. at that time, guess who was the bishop? Reuben Job. What wow. a delight. And yeah. I, I, so I don't know if the, it, it wasn't the job prospect that drew us there. We just felt a very uh, compelling call to, to, to meet with the Methodists. And so we did. And we got along famously. And uh, Bishop Job flew us up there for interviews, and 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 before we graduated, we had appointments. And the Oklahoma annual conference was a little upset, you know, because yeah. we were a resident in Oklahoma and you're going to Iowa. So we, you know, we 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 worked through all that because uh, we had uh, begun to explore possibilities by the time we went to Iowa. Mm-hmm. And Iowa was a proving ground; it was a training ground. Uh, I started in a large downtown church. I ended up in a three-point in the country. We mm-hmm. did a new church start up in a, in a troubled area. And then we taught at Wartburg College. So, you know, there were lots okay. of things gelling at that time. And we entered a D-Men. Entered a D-Men at United. So okay. the, the journey has taken us lots of places. So from, from um, Tulsa, Oklahoma to Davenport, Iowa, to Muscatine, Iowa, community of 22,000 at the time, and three churches, to Waterloo, Iowa, to Waverly, Iowa, to Ghana, West Africa. Wow. <laughs> we yeah. felt a compassion. Again, uh, our, our life has been a series of answering callings. Hmm. You know, the initial call to, to, to serve God as, as vocation, that's one call. But then we felt very strongly compelled to, to overseas ministry, went through the World Division at that time, which became the General Board of Global Ministries. Mm. <laughs> so it was the World Division at the time that we were commissioned and sent to Ghana. And um, I remember to the, 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 the mandate that we were given, you go where you are requested, not where we think we need missionaries. You go where the people request you. Mm-hmm. And you do what they ask you to do. And you work yourself out of a job so that before long you have handed over whatever it is you've learned and discovered to people who are resident there who will do it far better than you. So to get this, this understanding that the um, missionary is only the catalyst and the tool, the assist, but not the resident uh, expert. Yeah. Was, and that was so enlightening for all of ministry, you know, as I, as I thought about that. It was so enlightening for all of ministry. We, we left Ghana because of um, some trouble. Uh, the government had targeted us for, um, for, for a large bribe of $60,000. They, they made up a tax bill based on, the, mm. on our missionary salary. And at that time, missionaries were making $1,010 per month. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh. well, what are you taxing? Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, we, we, were, we were removed by, by Global Ministries in a, a matter of days and have not gone back since, probably mm. can't go back, as many missionaries know what that's mm. like. And so we landed in um, New York. Wow. Oh at the general board's uh, office in, 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 in a th- uh, Riverside Drive office. Yeah. And uh, that was eye opening because New York felt as its home as being in Ghana. The, the, the crossroads of the world is there. Yeah. And so learning that we had been forever changed to be most comfortable in a sea of diversity mm-hmm. was, was, a, was a gift we had been forever changed to be most comfortable in the sea of diversity. And uh, so I served a church in uh, New Jersey. My husband served as conference staff. And from there, we received another request, apply for this position in Nashville
0: hmm.
1: and uh, spent 10 years in Nashville. And while we were in Nashville and I was approaching 62, which is when I planned to retire, we got another call from Indiana saying, we need you here. And uh, they needed my husband in a number of things. He works in uh, multicultural ministry right now. Hmm. But they said, we need you in liturgy because of the Africana uh, worship project that right. we did there at, at, at discipleship. They said, we need you to teach liturgy and um, we, need you, we need your presence here. So we prayed about it. They, they asked us three times. First time they asked us, I laughed. <laughs> It's like, I don't know anybody in Indiana. I didn't lose anything there. You know, the wow. first time they asked us, I laughed. And then the second time we said, really, this is strange. Mm. And with such persistence and, 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 and an incredible amount of um, transparency. And the third time we declared a fast. We declared a fast day. We stayed home from church. We stayed in the living room fasting and looking at each other all day saying, could this be God? (laughs) And long story short, we ended up eight years. uh, I spent eight years in Indiana at Indiana Wesleyan, which was a, a, a new seminary. It was less than five years old when I went. So now look at this thing. I wouldn't go to Oral Roberts as an undergrad because they hadn't graduated a class yet. God has Uh, a sense of humor, you know? Yes. yes, (laughs) And then I go to a seminary that's less than five years old. And um, a a beautiful time there. A beautiful time there. Uh, Indiana Wesleyan has an incredible spirit. And Wesley Seminary has uh, an incredible spirit. And they believe that nothing is impossible. So you see how the roads are intersecting. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a grandfather teaching me that I could fly and that nothing was impossible. I go to a seminary where they believe that nothing was impossible. Mm-hmm. And they grew from, I think there were 200 and some students when we got there to well over 500 now at wow. a time when seminaries are shrinking. yeah. So it's, it's been a different journey. It's really been a, a different kind of journey. But all along, God has constantly proven that God is there. All along the journey yeah
0: tell us about liturgy and its role and movement in your life why are you drawn to it and Ah, how have you seen it be transformative in your own life and in the lives of others
1: yes 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 Going back, let me take you back to my grandparents' living room, yes. the Sabbath in the grandparents' living room, yep. and, and saying the rosary. You know, that sounds like an odd thing coming out of a lady with, heads, with dreadlocks. You know. Going back to, the, to, to, to my grandparents' yes. living room and saying the rosary, and not understanding quite why they always said the same thing all the time, but knowing that it was meaningful. And then fast forward through uh, church life and and faith life and all of that. And with the realization that at the times that I most needed to hear from God, sometimes the words that I would hear in my head were snatches of a familiar prayer or a familiar song or a familiar text from 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 the Bible, that those were the answers that I would get from God when I most needed to hear from God, a, a direct word or word of comfort or what have you, and realizing that there's this formative role that liturgy plays in our lives. As, as you trace the, 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 the history of liturgy, we find that... Um, it start and then this is the reductionist version of it don't do not quote me do not quote me in anybody's classroom, but this is the reductionist version of it that early on when people were gathering and assembling, there were folks always present who didn't know what to say, and so words were put together in songs, sometimes in chant, sometimes in ritual responses to help people know what to do and what to say. And um, when I'm teaching liturgy, I like to say that we borrow some words or some phrases or some ritual responses or some bodily movements or what have you until our own come. Hmm. And so as a liturgy writer, I loan people words until Hmm. their own words come there's always this understanding that at some point in this, you know, this journey, you will have your own words and you won't need mine. No. But until yours come and while we are gathered together and not often, not quite sure what it is that we can say together, pray together, dream together before God, we will loan you something no. as a starting point in the, in, in, in the, in the worship journey that you're on at the time. So that's how I visioned liturgy. Yeah.
0: When did you start really writing liturgy?
1: <sighs> I started writing liturgy. Probably I, 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 can, I can trace back to some of my early church appointments that I would write my own, you know, calls and responses and things yeah. like that, because they give you all these piles of books when you're, when you're a junior, you know, the minister and, and they say, use these. And, 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 mm-hmm. and I remember that first church that I served, uh, And I had come from another denomination and served in another denominational where everything was free flowing and spontaneous and they they poo pooed anyone who used written liturgy. But um, in my first downtown church experience, the senior minister there gave me a pile of prayer books and things like that and said, when it's time for the prayer, you pray. And, And what I would do, I'd look at them and it's like, this is okay. Yeah, this is fine. Well, this is pretty. And I'd pray that. And then while I was there, it was like the anointing would come for praying what the congregation needed mm-hmm. or what the concerns of the congregation you know, that I heard might, might be. And so when the people would come back and, and, and give me feedback, they say, we love it when you pray because, okay, you start the usual ways, but then after you get going, <laughs> that's the way that they would explain it in Iowa, you know, after mm-hmm. you get going, you speak to us. And so I began to see liturgy as a way to get going, quote unquote. Yeah. In 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 God. So I I, I remember uh, I remember the written liturgies that I was I was given, you know, piles of books, you know, libraries of books. And then I remember how they often served as a springboard to a deeper conversation with God. And so that's, I think that's when that began to percolate. And then, of course, during the, um, the four or five years that we were doing the writing for the Africana worship series, I was heavily steeped in liturgy. And to this day, I still write, I even write devotionally or, you know, I, 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 I put things down as they come to me, though there is no longer a website uh, where those things can be, be uh, shared with others. So, yeah, liturgy is a deep, deep interest. I, on the campus, I often just wrote the original liturgy for the, for the chapel services, you know, just from, from, from scratch and, and whatnot. And, and uh, people would come after, afterwards and said, you spoke what was in my prayer closet. And I, I, so I believe that there's a work of the spirit that goes on when you are writing liturgy, that you're a collector mm-hmm. and you collect the thoughts of the congregation or the aspirations, or the woes, or the worries, or the complaints, uh, or the laments, and you carry them to God, and that there is a response section of liturgy oftentimes, where God will speak back to the people. It's almost like the prophets, you know. Sometimes yeah. they would say, this is what you have done, people, and then this is what the Lord says. You know, it's, it, it's almost a prophetic venture. Um, so, so I have a deep, deep interest in liturgy.
0: Yeah. I love that, that word collector, and I've often used the word the liturgist as artist. Yes. Um, and, and so, or, you know, and so I think of all the many ways that, that we create art, whether it's through dancing or singing or right, right. Quil,
1: quilting or painting, you know, and so. Right, right. My, my undergrad major was English literature. Ah. And so I, I have this temptation sometimes to uh, put together liturgy in in the form of a shape poem. Yeah. You know, where the words actually outline and form a shape. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that some liturgy is meant to be spoken aloud and others meant to be read in the prayer closet or in the small group or what have you, that there's a visual experience and a tactile experience with the medium communicating it, whether it be the, the computer screen nowadays or the paper. And that uh, these are two different forms, just like some sermons are, are and, and my training is in preaching, <laughs> you know, it's, it uh-huh. wasn't in liturgy, it was uh-huh. in preaching. And some sermons are, are, are written to be read, and some sermons are written to be spoken. Yeah. And oftentimes people get them mixed up in that, and you put the wrong one in the wrong place and you've got a problem. <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> okay. same thing with liturgy. Some liturgy is, is meant to be read, and not to be spoken in a group you know like a group setting or a congregation or what have you but this is for the prayer time your your personal devotions for devotional reading or what have you and so there are times i want the shapes on the page you know there there is an artistry to it that and the uh putting putting the the liturgy in phrases that can be spoken without having to take a breath and gasp for air <laughs> unsuccessful liturgy is often because it's too wordy, it's too long and I don't have time to breathe, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so putting it in, in phrases that cause us to stop and reflect, to absorb the words to So the, the layout of liturgy is very, very important. It's very important to me. And I, I, I think in the presentation of it, that uh, it is better received when the people can, can, can perceive it by sight and not feel challenged or, or in, in uh inadequate yeah sometimes they say i can't do that or overwhelmed overwhelmed. Yeah. overwhelmed
0: overwhelmed yes yeah absolutely so tell us a little bit about what it's been like for your mind and your body and your spirit in this uh very unique time of covid and this global pandemic and also just as in the midst of this we've uh awakened or reawakened to the evils of white supremacy and racism. Uh, Yeah. Tell us about that. What's it been like for you?
1: This has been a very strange time. Mm -hmm. I I can truly say that um, I'm, I'm very prayerful about everything I see around me, but in my spirit, I am resting in God. That's the only thing I can do right now because there are too many um, memories that could um, completely disorient me. I grew up in, in Kansas and in Oklahoma, and um, most of my formation, I would say, was happening in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is really a part of the South. Texas and Oklahoma—they, you know—they're—they're they're, they're geographically located differently, but the mindset is the same uh, for people of color living there in the fifties and sixties, and then later, you know, parts of the seventies. Um, The—the mindset that I—I I had. So let me just start by saying, um, if you are a child of color, especially if you grew up in places where uh, discrimination is uh state sanctioned yeah to use you know the legislated uh racism you grow up from the time that you have self-awareness to have self-awareness of uh danger restriction that you are despised sight unseen and a whole slew of other thoughts they just are part of your self awareness when you as soon as you become aware of yourself you become aware that I am so and so and I am black you know mm-hmm. and um learning to overcome any um negative stigma that comes externally is is first of all it's the parents job you know it's a parents job to teach your children that you are not what they say about you
0: mm-hmm.
1: We do that in bullying, even, you know, even to this day, we, we're doing that with, 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 with the bullies in, in schools and, and places. But teaching your child to overcome what is constantly coming at the child is a parent's job. And, and my parents and grandparents did that job well. So now dealing with, you know, the bombardment stopped a little bit with the, some of the, the legislation but now that everything that had just gone undercover, we, we in our communities, we knew it just went underground. We knew that racism was not conquered. We knew it went underground and put on polite clothing. But to have it come back up in all its ugly glory, uh, you, you, you deal with your own sense of self and self-image and self, um, self-assurance in God and, 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 and in your community And you deal with your own sense of what is right and what is righteous. And I know in my heart that, um, well, I'll, I'll just say it like this. I'm praying that this time will be different. We were in the streets when I was a child. What, part of our teaching in the, in, the, in the public school system, I went to a segregated school because I was forbidden anywhere else, you know, uh, and, and part of our teaching in some of our classes in the segregated school system was how to do nonviolent demonstration, how to protect yourself if you are attacked by the police. Now, that's a heavy trip for a fifth grader, you know? Yeah. So, so knowing uh, right now my heart is broken because there are kids out in the street and they're not all black. And they didn't get the training I got, you know? And so, so part of me wants to go out there and, and embrace them and, and help in the movement. And the other parts of me says, no, you, your turn here is back on the back, back bench praying and um, keeping them before God and keeping their safety before God. But we've done this before. Yeah. So on, on one side, I'm like, here we go again. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, well, could this time be different? This time they haven't come in. They didn't stop. Well, we actually didn't stop last time. It went on for years, you know. Right. But but they have not come in. They have not come in, and I'm just continually holding them before God. Their safety that they don't expose themselves to COVID more because they are out there shouting until they're hoarse. I know some of these young people, and. um knowing their stories and knowing that they experienced the same thing I experienced at the similar age. So, you know, in, 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 in some settings we have shared, we've swapped stories and the stories are the same. So, uh, this is a necessary thing. I am disturbed that the anarchists have taken it as an occasion to go out and just wreak havoc and try to blame the others. I'm very disturbed at that, and I want them arrested.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But these babies who are out there saying something is not right and we won't be silent until you address it, I, 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 I know that voice. I, I was part of them as a child.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know, I know the dangers. I know the anxiety of parents when their children are out there. Will they come home? Will they come home with all their parts, you know? Yeah. But, um, so, so I'm, I'm sitting here kind of, um, in, in anticipation, it's like, oh God, am I going to be allowed to see the actual change happen? Is that going to happen while I'm alive? It, you know, so it, there's, there's a, there's a wonder and an a, a anticipation, uh, a little anxiety because they're in danger. Yeah. And then I'm so proud of them that they didn't give up, that they are hanging in there and yeah. saying even the little piece of, of, of concession you tried to toss at me is not enough, it's not over yet, it's not changed, it could still happen to someone else. So I'm so proud of them. Because they did not back down. They are not backing down. The anarchists, I could take a stick to them. <laughs> but, but, the, but, 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 the, but the pure heart of the demonstrations that are going on, they're going on in, in brotherly and sisterly love. They are, they are their brother and their sister's keeper. Mm-hmm. They are guardians of faith. They say, this is not faith. This is not right. This is not even our country. This is not our morality. This is wrong. And so whatever system that they're using that motivates them to be there, I'm proud of them. Because they actually believe something. Because I grew up in the faith with the understanding that if you weren't willing to die for it, what do you have? It's not coffee table conversation. It's real faith. If you're not willing to stand up for it, to take abuse over it, and to even die for it. We see that with the martyrs in our other countries. You know, some of our, some of our, our, our United Methodist friends. Um, I'm thinking of the people in Kano. You know, the people are at risk because of their faith. And so I'm very proud of them right now. Yeah. as you
0: pray and watch uh and witness hold vigil yeah is really how i'm envisioning that what and who keep you grounded and centered
1: uh I was mentored by a woman named Clara Luper, L-U-P-E-R. She was, uh, you can find her, and you can find her in Google. She was a a regional person that did a lot of the organizing with other people in committee in Oklahoma during the movement. Uh, She would make trips to... Uh, Alabama and Georgia to actually meet with uh, Dr. King
0: Hmm.
1: yeah and when she died uh, the she was in Oklahoma you have to remember she's an Okie and when she died the New York Times the Los Angeles Times and several other national newspapers carried her obituary which said a lot to me Um, I was mentored by her as early as the fifth grade in, um not just technique, it was the reasons why we demonstrate, because we know that God did not intend this. I think the biggest mistake that we make in this country is to say that civil rights is a social problem instead of a spiritual problem. Mm-hmm. We want to call it a social justice issue and, and push it. Out of the realm of faith and she taught us very early on that how we treat one another is a matter of faith she was a woman of deep spiritual faith and that was when prayer was still in the school you know. Uh, and, and she taught us that um, we demonstrate as a matter of faith There is a book in spiritual formation. You know, I teach a lot of spiritual formation Mm -hmm. uh, in my past life. I taught about eight or nine different spiritual formation courses, you know. And there was one book that I used called Resurrection Song. And uh, there's a chapter in Resurrection Song that points to um, the spirituality of justice. Mm -hmm. That we see that as a matter of faith. And so it's not convenience. It's not politically nice or whatever. This is a faith issue. If we say we belong to Jesus, and if we believe the texts that tell us there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus, and then we turn around and practice discrimination, we are are violating the tenets of our faith. And so I'm I'm held very closely by my firm inner conviction that this is a faith story being played out, even if all of them do not claim our faith. They claim some system of belief that inspires them to stay out in the hot sun and risk COVID and all the other, you know, so this is a faith story playing out. In in, in technicolor, it's being televised even. Uh, This is a faith story. And for me, it's a matter of faith. Uh, So I'm being held by that. I'm remembering uh, Clara Looper, who invested in me for a number of years. Uh, And because of her, I was persuaded that I could speak publicly. Because she she put me in the car with her. And took me around as a fifth grader, sixth grader, seventh grader. You know, she took me around. She took me under her wing as one of her own children. She, she, she you know, promised my mother I will keep her safe and I will keep her, you know. And they, they were in covenant with one another for, for the raising of me, you know. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm comforted by that. And then I had a family upbringing that was very socially aware of what was going on in our surroundings we did not hide from it and saw it very much as a matter of faith so i am conditioned and i am i am instilled with this understanding that what's going on is a matter of faith and righteousness and if we're truly going to be a faithful country we say we're not you know we're we're not saying that we're a christian nation anyway you know, we've we stopped that. We, we did that for a little while, but we're not doing that anymore. But if we're going to say that we're people who are righteous and just, this, mm. this, this, is, this, is, this is the process we're going to end up going through to get back to if we ever were ever. I don't know that we ever were. So I'm, I'm held by faith. I'm held by faith that this is righteous work. This is godly work that's going on right now and uh as as people of god as people of faith this is godly work so I've, i feel like a midwife you know waiting for this baby to be born mm. and i am i am keeping vigil and sometimes i intentionally keep vigil with the people who are doing what i really shouldn't do at almost 70 you know yeah
0: so this is the academy podcast and i would love for you to share a little bit about how you came to be one of our beloved faculty and uh, maybe what have you observed about the your academy experience uh, throughout the years and and why do you keep uh, coming back?
1: Oh I love the academy. I love the academy and um, I was in the building with the upper room and with the, the the offices of the academy and I don't know how it is that um, I came to be asked to lead uh, more than, I think, 13 years ago, maybe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It might be about 13 years ago, I was asked to lead a module. And it was the most delightful experience of being in, um, in community and in being in cloister yeah. with, with people who are on a journey to understand perfection, you know, John Wesley and perfection, you know, as we as we understand it. Um, and I've had this um, attraction to monastic communal living uh, probably since I was a child. In fact, at, at one point, I um, I went through catechism and, 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 and it was almost Catholic, you know, <laughs> and then uh, later in life, as a young adult. I was the cantor at a Catholic church when the when the services were still in Latin. Oh wow! The the priest there um, knew that I was in theater at that time. I was in theater before I was in ministry. And, and he said, I would love to help you, because uh, I, I did musical theater, I would love to help you re- rehearse your parts. And I said, Father, I can't, I can't pay you. I'm, ch- I'm poor as a church mouse, you know. And he said, no, 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 I just want the joy of playing the show tunes, you know, <laughs> which I thought was delightful. Mm. <laughs> and and I, I insisted, no, you, I can't let you do that. And he said, well, your payback to me will be to sing for the mass. Mm. And we did that for a year. And so I sang in Gregorian for a year wow. and had a weekly um, one-on-one with one of the priests. You know, how cool is that? <laughs> so coming to the academy and the rhythm of the academy um, day, okay. I felt like a duck back to the water, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, believe, uh, I believe in monastic communities. And I also believe that those of us who um, cannot make our residence or should not make our residence in monastic communities can go and sojourn. Yeah. And I, I, I use the word sojourn intentionally because I don't think that there's a tourism that works for that. I think we have to abide with one another. And feel the rhythms and 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 and, and go through the, the journey together. It's almost like walking the labyrinth together. And so the I, I love the academy. <laughs> how do well, I how, how do I say that? Well, it's it, it's it's a it's a beloved experience, and I'm always delighted when I'm able to come and join uh, because it feels like home. And I think we have many homes in faith. It feels like home, and we meet people. Who become our kin. Yeah. I think that's the other strength of the academy, that you have these uh, groups that stay in touch with one another. Because um, one of the things that, I, that I've been you know toying around in my head, I'm just retired, so I'm trying to figure out which of my bucket list uh, projects to tackle first. Mm-hmm. But we are having problems in this country as an individualistic society understanding that Christianity calls us to communal concerns. That's right. Yeah. What does that to do with me? You know, people always want to push it off somewhere else, but we are called to community and Christianity creates community. It creates new family out of family that did not exist. It, it calls us to experience all, to have all things in common. Does that sound like biblical language to you? And, and, and so having just bits and snatches of that, and I'm praying for the time that the academies can meet in person again, because that walking through the day together, having all things in common, and, and praying prayers together, and, and, and hearing instruction together, and then even alone, to, you know, like parallel play with, with young people, even alone together when it's time for our for our our, our, our sacred times, there's something formative about that. Mm-hmm. I think it teaches us to love our neighbor more deeply. Just, just a thought there, but if, I think it teaches us to love our neighbor more deeply.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I had a, a question here about liberation and, and what it looks like, but as I'm really sitting with you and listening, I'm wondering what does liberation sound like? <sighs>
1: sounds like voices chanting or singing together in harmony yeah yeah chanting or singing together in harmony Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we don't all make the same note but they all harmonize with one another and we're committed to finding the harmony and keeping it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: finding the harmony and keeping it uh, as we journey together yeah Well, of course, you've mentioned that
0: your retirement, and um, I would just love to give you an opportunity to tell us how we might uh, support you, pray with you, follow along with you uh, in this uh, new journey, new endeavor for you. Um, wow.
1: I, I have a liturgy project that okay. I'm trying to get off the ground. Uh, it has met uh, more administrative um, roadblocks than I could ever imagine. And so I'm ready to, um, you know, my grandfather taught me I could fly. We're going to get this thing done. Right. <laughs> because okay. I believe uh, that God wants it done and with the people that I'm, I'm in league with right now. I think, I think this is something God wants done in me and in them mm. for the good of the world. I don't think it's even just a United States reach. I think it's for the good of the world kind of a thing. I think this is a high-impact project. So getting that off the ground, I would appreciate as much prayer as you can muster. And then um, I have friends saying to me, uh, don't flunk retirement. (laughs) flunk retirement so I'm trying not to flunk mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to know what's the appropriate pace mm-hmm. of life and um I have I've, I've moved away from this um this tacit understanding that we have in, in, in our culture that every moment of life must be filled with something so learning how to abide yeah. and and to just be. And, 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 and what it is, uh, if, if there's something that God needs for me to do at this point, I have, I have several things in my mind. I think it might be, but I'm waiting on confirmation, you know, and, and all of that kind of thing. So just getting a direction for uh, legacy work, because I think the work of a person, I'm 69 in September, I'll be 70 next year. So I think that the, 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 the work of a person at my stage of life is legacy work. So what high impact thing can I do to invest in the next generations? Um, that will help them shape what ministry looks like for them and um, what things do I need to maybe put in writing while I'm still able to, to put them in, in my head, <laughs> you know, envision them, uh, what, what needs to be put down and, and left as a, as a record, as a living record of, of my time here. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of in that stage right now. Plus, I have taken, a, you can probably see the great wheel in the background Yes. I'm a, I'm a spinner.
0: Oh, yeah. I spin yarn
1: and then I weave it into things. Uh, and so I do art. Beautiful. And I'm finding that the art is unlocking lots of doors that have been uh, bottled up because I was just too tired and stressed out and whatever. And, and learning how this art, how art and spirituality mesh in my life at this time. So I have a little shop. And, you know, and all that kind of thing. So I'm, 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 I'm doing art. And I'm actually doing it as, a, as an expression of just humanity and being. Hmm. Um, not sure where it's going yet, but uh, loving the journey. Is <laughs> and loving the, shop, the community. huh?
0: Yeah, is your shop on Etsy?
1: It's on Etsy. Okay. okay. And what's it called? We, we want to find it. Oh, okay. It's Sankofa and silk, S-A-N-K-O-F-A-N-S-I-L-K, all one word. Beautiful. The Sankofa bird comes from uh, uh, one of the Ghanaian uh, tribal groups, one of the larger groups, the Akan people, uh, have um, symbol language they have little drawings and they all represent proverbs or or stories or wisdom teachings and so forth and this sankofa bird um was you know first of all animals can talk in this 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 uh this this proverb the sankofa bird was known to lay her eggs on the ground and go off and leave them and the other animals noticed this and they caught her on the path and they said That which you are doing back there is not good because if you keep leaving your eggs in the past, you will have no future. And so the the symbol of the Sankofa bird is a bird with her head turned backwards and an egg because they told her, you go back and fetch it. Hmm. (laughs) You go back and fetch what what you've left behind. So I think that we are connected. Um, it, It was an instructive proverb for me because I think we can't leave our past behind and pretend it never happened. Yeah that we are made whole by reconciliation with our past.
0: Hmm.
1: And so the the shop is Sankofa. (laughs) And after I got all into this, my mother told me that her grandmother was a spinner on a great wheel like this one back here. Hmm. (laughs) So I I feel that I'm coming full circle, but Hmm. uh, Sankofa and silk. and, And it's because I like to spin wool, but I love to spin silk. Yeah. So, uh, so there are some silk items in our in our shop as well, but uh, mostly wool and cottons, and a lot of a lot of uh, natural fibers are, are there. But I'm reclaiming silk. So there's there's this reclaimed silk movement going on, where um, when they make the saris on the sari machines, the, the gears get stuck with fuzz that would have been thrown away, and spinners have been gone have gone begging, and asked them to put it in a form that we can use. I'm reclaiming uh, cotton. Um, when they make T-shirts and things like that, they now pulverize the, the leftovers and, and put it in a form that can be knit with or or, or woven with or whatever. So we're reclaiming things, yeah. and uh, it, it just feels wonderful to be involved in some of that. And yeah. then going back into hand spinning and, and hand weaving, which is an ancient art, goes back you know generations and thousands of years uh, to to mm-hmm. just kind of reconnect with life is what life was like for women. Who, who, who did those kinds of things. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's, that's kind that's of how I'm spending a lot of my spare time right now, just understanding what it means to reconnect with um, what the artisans did and being connected to different communities, even in the Grand Rapids area. Uh-huh. There are a hundred of us in a guild here who do these kinds of things. Yeah. And women who keep sheep and alpacas and you know so you learn a lot from shepherdess mm. the women who keep sheep and alpacas can teach you a lot about life as you're just kind of in community so just um finding where do i fit now what I, what should i be doing the resist the temptation to have people drag you back into what you used to be doing i don't want to flunk retirement and i have an endeavor that i think god wants but we're having a hard time getting it housed <laughs> those are the prayer concerns that i have
0: yeah well thank you of course for for being with us for sharing your wisdom and your passion your commitment your story it's a it's been a real gift and i would love uh to hear from you just a final blessing or maybe a song or that
1: you would share with us as we close today May the Lord bless you as we travel at the end of the age. When this is over, nothing will be as it was before or where it was before, but may you still find sure footing. May you know where true north is, and may you not be disoriented as the world is shaking. And may you be comforted with the assurance that God has said, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. Walk in peace. Walk in love. Walk in God. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. And don't forget to check out our new one-year online Academy offering, Spiritual Formation in Today's World, by visiting the online retreat schedule on our website. We'd love to welcome you into this new endeavor of spiritual formation online together. The work of love and justice begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches, dances, listens, learns, writes, and sings along with us. Thanks for being a part of this life-changing work. We're grateful you're here and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, And to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org.